Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of The podcast in which a group of The podcast in which a group of B-Side. Hello, and welcome back to B-Side. I'm Tom, your host for this episode, and today I'm going to be working on the first chapter in the Back to the Future trilogy. It's an appropriate day to do this. Uh, Where I am, I'm in eastern Connecticut, right outside of the University of Connecticut in stores. There's a big thunderstorm, it's raining, it's nice and warm. It's a nice summer rain day, very appropriate to talk about Back to the Future. And what I wanna talk about with regards to this film is not so much the plot of Back to the Future, but the depiction of science and scientific discourse in relation to um, a number of older plays in the late 17th century. And I want to think of science in Back to the Future and science in other works, such as H.G. Wells's The Time Machine. Now, I know The Time Machine is a Victorian work, not a late 17th century work, but I think it all sort of connects together. And it connects together with the understanding that very often science is seen with respect to how it is performed or presented. All right, so let's get started. One of the things I'm going to argue for this podcast is that film and the time machine are both great metaphors for one another. Or we might say, since time machines don't exist, that film is a great metaphor for a time machine. In order to understand the connection between cinema and film, I want to go back and look at a bit of the history of the depiction of scientific inquiry and scientific creation. By creation, I mean the sort of work that we see Doc Brown and Back to the Future do. He is making gadgets, so to speak, based upon our understanding of the human condition. And he's then going back and um, using these to expand what we know about the world. He's not doing it to make money or for the glory of God or anything like that. It's for the pure sake of discovery. And I will let you know right now that if you hear thunder or rain in the background, I'm doing my best to mute that. I'm hiding out in my bathroom with a bunch of blankets to dampen the sound, but there still seems to be some thunder coming in, so my apologies. But anyway, let's get into it. We see in the third book of Gulliver's Travels, Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift from 1726, that Gulliver visits the flying island of Laputa. There he discovers the Academy of Legato, and this is what we get from Swift's work. This is what Gulliver writes that he observes. Quote, It seems the minds of these people are taken up with intense speculation that they neither can speak nor attend to the discourses of others, without being roused by some external taction upon the organ of speech 
and hearing, end quote. This book does capture the feeling people of the late 17th and people of the early 18th century had uh, with regards to what was known as the Royal Society. Now, the Royal Society is an organization that was founded in England in 1660 and granted a royal charter by Charles II. And yes, it is still in operation today, as I mentioned on the A side of this podcast. And that makes it the oldest natural science institute in the world. In the early years, the society would revolve around experiments performed by kind of different major figures. One of the first of these figures was Robert Hooke, um, who was one of the very first chemists and, and started inventing um, the, the microscope. Um, you also see Denis Papin, the inventor of the precursor to the steam engine. So these were major figures and they were kind of developing these, um, these different kind of gizmos or gadgets in order to help understand the natural world. Um, by the 18th century, we can see such greats as, as Sir Isaac Newton and Benjamin Franklin partaking in the Royal Society. But the society's reputation began to dull, began to suffer. Um, political concerns began to dominate the society, and a circle of Whigs started to dominate the inner workings. So just to let you know, the, the two political parties, uh, parties is, is a bit of a crude term, but political ideologies maybe in England at this time, looking at the, the early part of the 18th century, was between the Whigs and the Tories. The Tories come out of this, this royalist tradition, um, this respecter of the, the Stuart monarchs, who by the early 18th century were gone. I believe George I, the, the Hanoverian king, takes control, I, I want to say in 1714, I'll, I'll look that up. And the reign before him was Anne, the daughter of James II. James II was a, a Stuart monarch who left the throne in the bloodless revolution of the late 1680s. And after that, that kind of marks the point when we start to see more of a, a parliamentary rule. We start to see the prime minister who becomes established in the 18th century, Robert Walpole being the first one, take a more prominent role in politics and the, the royals taking less of a role. Um, George III is kind of an exception to this. George III, later in the century, he takes control in 1764. He, he's a little more aggressive, but basically from the end of the 1680s to today, the power of the royals had been greatly diminished. The people who were kind of a little more gung-ho about parliamentary rule, who were a little gung-ho about um, kind of economic economic wealth and prosperity and the movement between classes, these people be, were the Whigs. Um, as I said before, the Tories were the, the Royalists. And the Whigs started to dominate the inner workings of the Royal Society. So you can imagine that once there's a, a political movement that not everyone is on board with, take over an institution, that institution 
begins to dull in terms of its common practices. The reason for the kind of Whig domination of the royal society was, despite its name, was that economic mobility and economic advancement was connected to scientific endeavors, just as it is today, right? I mean, I think, I don't remember the exact stat off the top of my head, but a great percentage of our economy is using quantum information in in order to do it. Back then, and it wasn't quite as dominant, quantum wasn't there at all, but people saw scientific invention as being possible projects that one could invest in and, you know, advance the society. This wasn't just in private business, though it was there, but also in public works projects, for example. There was a, a major concern involving improving waterways. And so a projector, someone who had these kind of projects, wanted to come into London and, and improve the, the waterways there. Um, but that was the kind of work that the Royal Society was going into. And that was part of the reason why it became politicized and why it became politicized with a, a Whig, a dominant Whig presence at its core. Many writers, especially in the theater, poked fun at the society. A lot of writers in the theater, especially uh, in the Restoration Theater, so this is the theater of Charles II, they saw these scientific tinkerers, these Doc Browns of the 17th century, as virtuosos. That's often what they called them. And they would poke fun at these virtuosos and how they behaved and, and what they were doing. And you could see that that lasts well into the 18th century and, and even beyond. But we could see with Gulliver, right, where the people there are so taken up with intense speculation that they can't pay attention to anything outside of themselves. And what we end up seeing is this sort of maniac type person who really can't get out of their own way, who really cannot see what's in front of him. And in front of her, too. We also have female virtuosos. So in 2012, to switch gears a little bit, there's a really interesting book written by Al Coppola, or Coppola, I don't know which, titled Theater of Experiment. And Coppola, we'll say Coppola since it's a film podcast, uh, Coppola explores the discourses of science using uh, Bruno Latour's actor network theory. What, what this is, we're not going to go too deep into it in this podcast, but just to let you know Coppola's uh, thesis, the actor network theory refers to a network containing many dissimilar elements made up of both social and technical parts buyers and sellers, and what the buyers and sellers bring to the table. And so um, the, the actor network theory might be uh, a person in a store who's selling groceries. And that would also include the customer in the store. But it would also include those things which facilitate that transaction. For example, clothing. Can't go into a store without clothing. So how does the, the choice of clothing affect the network? And then the, the clothing manufacturers, etc., designers are brought into the network. And so 
in so doing, Bruno Latour, the, the person who came up with this, um, is able to bind these kind of social and technical aspects together. And maybe the, the production of clothes is a technical thing, but it has this sort of social resonance. It allows you to become a buyer in a store. Coppola, on the other hand, argues that scientific discourse moves from the courtly space to the public sphere and connects itself to commodity transactions. And what we begin to see is that the plays of the late 17th and early 18th centuries begin to satirize these kind of scientific transitions from internal to public demonstration. And by internal, it would be, like I mentioned before, with Hooke, who's, who's demonstrating to his colleagues how the, the microscope works, right? Or you might have a court demonstration, a demonstration to the, the court of Charles II, some kind of scientific discovery. Over time, Coppola says, this becomes much more of a public sphere discussion and activity. Coppola, in order to exemplify this, brings up Robert Hooke. Uh, Hooke, after a while, becomes extremely famous. He becomes known as the first chemists, and he publishes a work called Micrographia. And what Micrographia does is it demonstrates pictures drawn from images seen under the microscope. So they'd be drawn, and they are of things you would see under the microscope. And he would sell this book, and therefore he would, quote-unquote, sell the science, connecting the science itself to this kind of entrepreneurial spirit, that you generate this work to publicly show off to everyone, and then, you know, kind of a bunch of dollars, or in this case pounds, flows your way. Uh, and so therefore scientists are seen not maybe the way we see them today as, as people working in a university trying to publish papers, but rather scientists are seen as part of the kind of the entrepreneurial values that are beginning to become stronger and stronger throughout the 18th century. At the same time, we start to see that satire begins to mock this um, experimental slash entrepreneurial spirit. So in a few cases very early on, we see that Thomas Hobbes's 1661 book, Dialogus Physicus, as well as uh, the very famous female writer, uh, Margaret Cavendish, um, her 1668 book, Observations on Experimental Philosophy, that these two books um, deride the new science for its focus on spectacle. And this is something you would see. It's kind of like the sideshow thing where you would um, have a kind of, of theater and you would go in and then you would see the great scientific demonstration go on. This continues into the 19th century. And you could think of where autopsies were done. Autopsies were done in a space that was called a theater. And you would, you know, gather around and see the um, see the, the master surgeon or whatever they call them perform the autopsy. That really starts now, and as it starts, remember the Royal Society, 1660, it's founded. Uh, Hobbes is already criticizing this kind of behavior by 1661. In its start, it's already kind of problematized as what 
and why are we financing or valuing spectacle, right? What, what is kind of the point of this? Why are we drawing attention to this? And if you're like Hobbes and have kind of a, a royalist bent, to say the least about good old Tommy Hobbes, then this is going to be a problem. Now, it's not exactly idolatry. We're not, we're not talking in, in religious terms here, but we are drawing eyes upon something that is in this kind of hierarchical, aristocratic, royal peerage. Um, and, and this becomes kind of a, a problem for writers like Cavendish and Hobbes, both of whom are inclined towards the royalist spirit. In other works, uh, we see, for example, in the drama by Afra Ben, her last drama, The Emperor of the Moon, which uh, premiered in 1687. Um, and then later on, Susan Center leaves A Bold Stroke for a Wife, that premiered in 1718. These works start to demonstrate these attitudes towards science and towards the Royal Society by both creating in their own way, these kind of proto-Doc Browns. Um, Centralieve uh, creates the character of Periwinkle, who spends all day obsessed with inventions and foreign trinkets and discoveries, and is really interested in an inheritance so that he can continue to finance his, his kind of discoveries and also in possibly going overseas and, and beginning to investigate more. Um, Afroben, also a royalist, also part of this kind of uh, Tory spirit. Um, in her final play, she depicts Dr. Baliardo, who obsesses over the moon. He's always looking at the moon through a telescope, and he believes that it's inhabited. Um, and in the play, Baliardo is, is seen as someone who is, whose obsession is, is more like a disease. It's something that needs to be cured of. You know, that he's so focused out there on the scientific thing that he's not being kind of a proper person in the world. Um, and so those are kind of two examples of satirizing, efforts to satirize the the virtuoso, the scientific projector, the scientific discoverer. This continues later on. We see in um, Charles Dickens' famous book, The Pickwick Papers, there's a, a satire of science. Um, and, and it's this one scene uh, when this elderly man who's really kind of science-minded he goes on a long ramble at one point in the book about electricity after seeing the lamp of, of one of the novel's main characters. And so there's this little moment where he's kind of going on and on about the details of electricity in this kind of very excited way. And once we get into the 20th century, the concerns about science, especially after developing the bomb, become far more biting in their satirical commentary. One example of this, I think we can think of from Adelis Huxley's Brave New World, which involves a depiction of a future pseudo-utopian space. It's this, it's this great thing, nobody's in pain, etc. And everybody takes these drugs, Soma, which sort of give you a, a lot of pleasure, but also sort of rob 
maybe what we might think of as an artistic spirit or a spirit of discovery. And so while before in the 18th century and the 17th century, we're depicting the scientist as sort of addicted to discovery. He's always or she's always driving at these discoveries to such an extent that he or she robs themselves of social interaction. Well, once you get into into Brave New World, the, the scientific discoveries are um, sort of misshaping all of society. They're not isolating individuals, but actually causing a problem with society. They're even, in the case of Brave New World, limiting the possibility of discovery. We also see with works like the, the much more difficult novel Gravity's Rainbow by uh, Thomas Pynchon from the early 70s, I want to say 1973, off the top of my head. And what Pynchon's novel refers to is the path, the, the parabolic path of a V-2 rocket that were launched, a lot of them were launched during World War II. And so there's this kind of idea of technology beginning to shape people. And in fact, the, the main character in Gravity's Rainbow, it is suggested, actually gets sexually aroused when he's um, anywhere where the, the missile has been, that he's been kind of trained in a, in a Pavlovian way to be excited by the material of, um, not the normal V2 rocket, but this other rocket that was developed in secret. And so you begin to see the uh, integration of technology and biology there, especially human biology and the kind of potential weirdnesses that it can invoke. However, when we get to Back to the Future, it's kind of hard to call this a satire. Actually, it just isn't one. It isn't a satire, and we shouldn't call it one. So what I want to do with Back to the Future, then, is look at this article I found in the journal Adaptation. Um, the, the article is called, There's Something Very Familiar About All This, colon, Time Machines, Cultural Tangents, and Mastering Time in H.G. Wells's The Time Machine and the Back to the Future Trilogy. This was published originally in August of 2016, the journal again, Adaptation, and the author is Surcha Niflen. I'm having a little trouble pronouncing it. Um, it seems that it's, it's from one of the Gaelic languages, the name. And what this author argues, or what this author brings up, is a comparison between Back to the Future, the invention of cinema, and the invention of mechanized time travel, or at least the fictional invention of mechanized time travel. So what the author begins with is H.G. Wells's novella, The Time Machine. This novella was originally published in 1865, and the plot of the book is as such. It's, it's a two, it's a kind of a, a framework in which an unnamed person goes to the house of another unnamed person who becomes known as just the time traveler, who has invented a time machine and then demonstrates it for the audience. Then the narrative switches to uh, an account by the time traveler of his adventures uh, in the future, like 800,000 years in the future, something like that. And then the time traveler returns to this Victorian dining room again. 
And so what we have here, much like in the, the Royal Society of Old, a public demonstration, part private, because we're in a private home, but also kind of part public, people are invited in, of the advancement of technology. There's a little bit of skepticism about it. Um, in the end of the book, the time traveler returns, but then later he disappears again, and we learn that the second time he disappeared, he hasn't come back, and it's been, I believe, three months since he had gone. So it ends on this kind of suspicious note, I would say. But up to that point, what we have again is the public demonstration of time travel. And the 1890s were also a great time for cinema, another great technology that is publicly demonstrated and shows an ability to recapture or even control time. 1893, the kinetograph of Thomas Edison is invented. And there's a great museum in Astoria, museum, the Museum of Motion Picture. And in that museum, you could go back in history and see a lot of the initial Thomas Edison little short films he did. And they might be of Sandowski. Eugene Sandowski was the, the, the uh, bodybuilder. Um, I believe the Mr. Olympia trophy is still named for him. You could see a video of him posing. You could also see a boxing match. I think it's Gentleman Jim Corbett. I may, I may be having my heavyweight champion listed wrong, but I believe that was who it was. And you could read about the history of trying to film it, where they had to keep moving the ring around in order to better capture the light. And so Edison invents this thing, and really it's kind of a sideshow trick, right? Much like the time machine in Wells, it's a, it's a demonstration. It's a form of entertainment. It's a form of theater. The 1890s also saw the Lumiere brothers. That is Auguste and Louis Lumiere, who in January 25th of 1896 released their film, The Arrival on a Train at La Cita Station. And what this depicted was a train, uh, the camera was at a train station, and depicted the train driving up to the station. This was shown in a southern part in France, and according to a, a German periodical, the people jumped up and even some of them ran out of the theater. Now this interpretation of what happened or this um, account of what happened, a lot of evidence suggests that it may actually just not have been true, but whatever, we still get the idea, right? That this is, this technology is about trickery. Even George Millais, the first kind of great experimenter with special effects, uh, the most famous one being the kind of the, the man in the moon who a rocket flies up to the moon and it hits the man in the moon's eye. I think that's probably the most famous uh, George Millais moment. But a lot of his work involve special effects, people vanishing all of a sudden, using editing and things like this. Um, and this all became part of the kind of the, the idea of cinema. It wasn't necessarily about narrative. It was about spectacle. The, the kind of thing we might imagine at, at a carnival. And even in um, Hugo, the Martin Scorsese film based upon a popular children's book, 
we see a depiction of the Lumiere brothers event. And it's at this kind of, it's in this tent, right? Outdoors in France. And, you know, you go into the tent and you buy a ticket and you watch this, um, this movie, and it feels very much like a carnival. And that was kind of the idea of science and cinema at this time. And we could see the, the 1890s being a time when this happens. Um, it's also the time, as I mentioned before, that we first see this idea of mechanized time travel. Not that we hadn't seen time travel before. Uh, a Connecticut in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain had been published a few years earlier, I think the 1880s, 1888, something like that. And even A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens was published in 1843, which also depicts a sort of time travel. Ebenezer Scrooge goes into the past and sees his past. He goes into the future and sees a, a potential future, even though he can't really make any changes in the ways Wells' time traveler can or Marty and Doc can in Back to the Future. And so I would say that the DeLorean, that the act of time traveling, that going into the past and changing things up becomes a, a, a great metaphor for what cinema itself does and even what the particular film Back to the Future is doing. Back to the Future has this sort of glossy, somewhat idyllic version of the 1950s. There's little holes in this, right? I mean, George McFly is a peeping Tom, which is kind of creepy. But for the most part, the 50s version of this town is very bright and shiny and new. And the 80s version of this town, well, I wouldn't say run down, is certainly beaten up a little bit. And what the, the time-traveling story allows us to do is recapture the past and bring it into the present, bring into the present a world we would prefer. You know, we could imagine that in, um, in the way people talk about the 1950s today, as this idyllic time, as this time when you had a robust middle class, as this time when people were just better. We were just better and more American and all this stuff in the 1950s. And you're able to call on the 50s and bring it into the future and make the future better, or at least attempt to make the future better. And that's what Marty and Doc do here. They go into the past, not intentionally, and they end up improving the future. They end up fixing the future, uh, using the 1950s to change things around. The connection there between our understanding of science and our spectacle, our understanding of spectacle, is also linked in the cinema. Um, when we do Back to the Future 2, I think at the time of this, by the time this B-side gets released, we will have recorded Back to the Future 2, although we have not yet. Um, in Back to the Future 2, we start to see advancements in, um, in special effects. Industrial light and magic, developed something called a chroma keying. And what chroma keying did was it allowed the changing of the background via green or blue screen. Um, the, the camera that did this was the Vistiglide camera uh, built by, as I said before, Industrial Light and Magic. And that allowed the camera to map separate 
scenes onto one scene and dolly the images in. So you could have one scene where Michael J. Fox is playing three characters and you can, you can impose all of those different characters onto a single space. And that's what this Vistaglide camera did. Um, and part of the, the appeal of Back to the Future 2, I'm not a huge fan of this movie, but part of the appeal for uh, an audience member or an audience member in any kind of summer blockbuster special effect type spectacle is the advancement of the technology. We actually get to sit back and through the vehicle of a traditional three-act narrative are able to absorb this kind of great demonstration of technical mastery. And Back to the Future 2 does that. Jaws did that too about 10 or so years earlier for Spielberg. And Spielberg directed that movie. He produces this movie. He's got his hands over this, this idea of technical mastery. And what's interesting about it is it seems that, from my observation at this point, we're a little bit exhausted by quantity when it comes to special effect. I know at least I am, and I think that seems to be true of people generally, that um, after Star Wars Episode Two, the search was to use this kind of um, big budget special effects in a more... Uh, intelligent, maybe even elegant way. I would say that's probably not true of something like Avatar, right? Which was entirely absorbed with the special effects. It was the selling point. And the three kind of three-dimensional aspect of Avatar, which didn't really stay with movies after it. Um, but that three-dimensional aspect became the new spectacle on which we dwell. The opposite of the Avatar, Back to the Future to Star Wars Episode One genre, I would say is something like Ex Machina, which we had done in an earlier podcast. And in Ex Machina, it won the Oscar for Best Special Effects and did that with slight highlights. Um, very small details were given the special effect treatment and used in order to create this kind of beautiful, elegant robot. You know, the, 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 the character Ava is a robot, and she seems mostly human, but we're able to see through her, we're able to see the kind of the wires in her arms. And so it wasn't really about quantity or bigness or size. It wasn't really about spectacle, but it was more about maybe aesthetics or even beauty. And I think that the evolution of special effects and spectatorship in the cinema kind of matches or mirrors the Royal Society in the, the middle of the 17th century and the evolution of the development of scientific discourse and the inevitable spectatorship and commercial aspects too, cinema is very commercial, that went into shaping those scientific discourses. All right, I think that'll be it for today. Thank you very much, and this has been B-Side.